and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Illegal wildlife trafficking doesn't get the attention it deserves. The planet has been experiencing unprecedented levels of extinction, driven by intensified poaching and wildlife trafficking for food, medicine, and trophies. Elephants, rhinos, and tigers are not the only species facing the dangerous levels of poaching and trafficking. But what kind of social, political, and economic effects does illegal wildlife trafficking have in countries that are at the center of the illegal wildlife market? And what other kinds of threats can emerge due to an increase in wildlife trafficking? To help us understand this issue, we have Vanda Felbaugh-Brown from the Brookings Institution and also the author of The Extinction Market, Wildlife Trafficking and How to Counter It. Vanda is a senior fellow in the 21st Century Intelligence and Foreign Policy Program at Brookings and an expert in internal conflicts and non-traditional security threats. Welcome to the podcast, Vanda. It's a great pleasure to be here. Before we start talking about wildlife trafficking, um, let's talk about what's been happening in some parts of the world. The Syrian war is now halfway through its seventh year, with no end in sight. The presidents of Iran, Turkey, and Russia met to discuss military cooperation, the return of Syrian refugees, and to create a committee that will investigate the disappearance of thousands of civilians during the conflict. Now, is this meeting any different from previous ones? And what kind of hurdles do returning Syrians face since the war is ongoing? You said no end in sight, Sahar, and I'm wondering if that's actually not true anymore. I think maybe the end is a little bit more in sight than it used to be. And I think more or less everyone knows how it's going to end at this point with a few details to be cleaned up. But uh, I think Assad's going to establish recontrol, uh, control again of, of Syria. And the question now is how to you know, manage it once he's got it all back. Uh, and so I think you know, that's the undertone to me of this kind of meeting. Um, and, you know, then just to throw another news bit on top of that, you know, you have the Trump administration now uh, threatening Assad with another round of retaliation should he use chemical weapons in this sort of final assault on Idlib. And, um, you know, Lord only knows where that gets you. Well, and I would add to it that even though it looks like um, the Assad regime will win control, uh, the issue or full control, it already has bias control. Um, there are sort of l- large repercussions. The most immediate and lasting one, of course, is the humanitarian repercussion. And um, even with the winning of territory, what kind of credible pressure engagement the international community can put on the Assad regime to prevent massive slaughter at this last minute and um, um, persecution of people uh, afterwards. And that is also the larger issue of the international commitments, proclamations by great powers, by the United States and others, that they would not allow uh, to happen what happened in, uh, in Syria, including commitments that the Assad regime must go, that Assad must go, that have proven um, empty. Um, which will haunt us um, for a long time. It will critically haunt people on the ground in Syria and those who have been involved. But the larger uh, legacy of that is very significant and very unfortunate. Yes, absolutely. And I think the greater issue has been that when these meetings take place, they always focus on refugees returning to Syria. But they don't talk about what are they returning to? I mean, their homes are destroyed. There's nothing there to return to. So Assad might have control of the territory, but there's no infrastructure in place. So regardless of who is in power in Syria after all of this, um, the main problem will be 
can Syrians go back? And do they want to go back? That's also a greater issue. Well, and I fear that, you know, even from the very difficult plight of the refugees, I might posit that uh, the plight of people who are on the ground in Syria, who were opposing the regime, might actually be far greater. They don't have the option of getting out. They will not get the option of getting out. And so it's not even what people are returning to, but is the Assad regime going to adopt starving policies, not just during the war, but in the post-war on purpose? Uh, is it going to deny just elementary um, social humanitarian services with what kind of, if any, um, international opprobrium that's meaningful in changing any action? So I really fear for the refugees, but even far more for people who are in Syria, actually. Right. Well, moving on to um, Myanmar, uh, a few weeks ago, the UN released a report that accused Myanmar's military of committing genocide against the Rohingyas last year, which has resulted in a humanitarian crisis that has killed and displaced thousands of Rohingya Muslims. Now, even though the crisis is ongoing, the International Criminal Court has said that Myanmar can be prosecuted for crimes against the Rohingya. Now, what does this really mean and what kind of effect if any, will the ICC prosecution have on the crisis? Well, I believe that the position taken by uh, the ICC and the UN is a very important one. It's um, another situation where there are mass atrocities ongoing, where the government, including the Suchi government, is clearly complicit, negligent, and in denial of what is happening, uh, where international engagements with a lighter touch has been ineffective. Um, oftentimes, it is only international bodies like the ICC that bring any modicum of justice to victims, any sense that there is any recognition of the plight. Uh, that said, the ICC might indict individuals. It doesn't have the capacity to change or prevent slaughter on the ground to to uh, instigate um, how people return, uh, Rohingyas who have been displaced within Myanmar and particularly outside of Myanmar, what kind of conditions they take place. So it's a very incomplete uh, measure, but certainly better than to pretend that uh, the atrocities are not ongoing. And then, you know, it's, I think, very significant who will be indicted, um, if anyone, and what kind of investigations will take place. But um, there is real responsibility on the civilian government, irrespective of how um, weak the Suchi government is with respect to the mechanics of political power in Myanmar. Uh, Suchi has great uh, authority within Myanmar, and she has not utilized the authority. In fact, she's utilized her authority to deny uh, in ways that uh, really is just reprehensible. Yeah, all well said. And I think <clears throat> I would add that, you know, it's it's important. It's an important symbolic line uh, for uh, the UN uh, to cross, to call it genocide. I think <clears throat> that kind of kicks in a different level of uh, sort of uh, rhetoric anyway. And and even if it doesn't finally produce, you know, meaningful leverage, it, it's a start anyway. You, you need to call things what they are if you're going to deal with them. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that that's kind of an important thing. I, I do think the ICC doesn't have a long enough track record um, to be a huge deterrent, unfortunately, right? I mean, I think you could be a war criminal and pretty be pretty sure that you're not ever going to go to a trial at the ICC. Um, 
But, you know, maybe on the margin, you know, I mean, it's not like this is the United States, uh, you know, or somebody big and powerful who can just tell the ICC to go away. I mean, Myanmar is not a huge international player. They might worry more about, you know, the the potential downstream effects there. I, I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess my question would be what can um, the UN do to sort of put the fear of, of God, so to speak, uh, into the leadership uh, there, you know, so that they actually stop some of what they're doing? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, ICC prosecution has sort of helped deter certain leaders. But like you said, I mean, Myanmar is a small country, so they may worry more about the ICC. And I think just in general, regardless of whether this ICC prosecution goes anywhere, the fact that they're actually labeling it as a genocide, I think, is really important because genocide is a legal um, term rather than ethnic cleansing. So for better or for worse, at least it's a start to perhaps something legal. But uh, moving on, um, so Wanda, we always ask our guests a surprise question of the day. And the question is, what got you interested in foreign policy and international relations? I mean, was it a class you took? Was it somebody you met, a podcast, um, a book, anything that got you interested? So uh, the question um, has actually a good relevance for the other topic that we'll be talking about, which is wildlife trafficking. What I really wanted to do when I was a child from the age of about four to eight was to be a zoologist. I was growing up at the time in communist Czechoslovakia. This was the 80s where liberalization took place in places like Hungary and Poland, but no liberalization really took place in communist Czechoslovakia. The regime was very entrenched, very strong, and there were very few freedoms. So I, I had a real passion for nature, and I desperately wanted to be um, a zoologist for four years. And I was very motivated. I was um, I subjected my uh, father to reading morphology books. For those of you who don't know what morphology is, this is um, essentially the descriptive uh, elements of of animals. You know, does it have four legs or two legs? Does it have wings or does it have fins? Which can get very dry. And lots of the morphology <laughs> books were really just encyclopedias of this is a white tree opossum. It lives in Australia. It gives uh, birth to eight young ones. Just hell <laughs> to read it. But I was devouring and I couldn't read at the point. So I, made, you know, I was three, four, five. So I made my father read this for hours on. <laughs> as long as he could, um, and just spend lots of time. I was growing up in the borderlands of um, uh, Czechoslovakia. I spent lots of time in the woods, place of great nature at the time in the country where lots of nature was destroyed. But one of the reasons why um, it was um, preserved is because it bordered Austria, uh, a neutral country, and it bordered West Germany, in the place where I was living, of course, part of the um, um, anti-communist, part of the NATO dangerous West. So it was heavily militarized, but at the same time, development couldn't take place. Logging was limited. So nature very much intersected with um, um, smuggling, with people trying to escape um, into the West and goods being smuggled, uh, some is that literature being smuggled through those areas uh, to the communist Czechoslovakia. But I was living. So by the time I hit eight, I was in my third grade. We started having biology classes. I really li- realized that my dream, when I, what I wanted to do as a, as a zoologist, uh, which was to work on sea otters or leopards, would not materialize. You know, Czechoslovakia, landlocked, no sea, no sea otters, and of river otters in significant decline. Uh, and you know, to the extent that one could travel abroad, sea otters are off of the U.S., California, Alaska, arch enemy, ain't gonna happen. 
Uh, the other animal I really was passionate about and still today I love the cats are leopards. Uh, and uh, that was not completely impossible. Every so often, the Czechoslovak zoologist could travel to Africa, especially some of the socialist-leaning countries in Africa. But it was still very hard. And I sort of came to this realization that um, you know what I really wanted to do was not going to happen. Meanwhile, I was living in the context of communism, the fight against communism. I still had nuclear drills. Duck and cover was very much part of my childhood. Smuggling, the the contradiction between what was illegal was often seen as legitimate. Resistance, rebellion, opposition, evading laws, uh, smuggling goods and people would be seen as legitimate. And uh, so I kind of made that switch uh, at the age of eight uh, to international relations, although I ended up working on many of these dimensions. But uh, I, the passion for nature stayed um, with me. I have been a bird watcher, wildlife watcher all my life, scuba diver. Um, and um, have I been growing up here at the time? I might have been a conservation zoologist right now. Wow, you were a much more serious eight-year-old than I was. I, uh, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a, a great segue to our main topic. But um, before we talk about the causes and means and consequences of poaching and wildlife trafficking, um, can you give us a background of this problem? In other words, what is illegal wildlife trade? Mm-hmm. Well, I would uh, first of all start that we need to think beyond trade, and we should really think about what is the illegal wildlife economy. Um, so one aspect of it are animals that are traded illegally. That's the trade or trafficking dimension of it. But of course, in order to trade something, one needs to acquire it in the first place. So there is a second dimension to wildlife trafficking, and that's poaching. Uh, or in the case of other natural resource uh, resources, it could be illegal logging, illegal mining, the illegal exploitation of resources. What does illegal mean? It's um, exploitation of resources such as harvesting of animals uh, or harvesting of uh, plants in violation of either national or international norms and laws. Each country set some uh, domestic regulations as to what can be taken out of nature and to whom nature belongs. In some parts of the world, like Ethiopia, land and forests are owned by uh, the state. In other cases, there might be um, they might belong to private um, entities, to communities. In one of the big. Um, uh, one of the big trends or one of the big uh, desirable trends in the conservation community since the 1990s has been to designate um, land, protected land or forest as belonging to communities, particularly indigenous communities, with the hope that this would um, stimulate better conservation. Oftentimes it does, not always that's the case. So um, the first, we really need to think more broadly about illegal trade as uh, the illegal economy with the illegal harvesting, a crucial element. A lot of the uh, animals that are poached are traded either domestically or internationally. At this point, it becomes trafficking. So these are the famous... um, notorious um, uh, situations of rhino horn or elephant tusk uh, being uh, traded, being trafficked from Africa to Asia, for example. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, communities around the world, one billion of people around the world still depends on uh, 
subsistence hunting or natural resources for basic uh, livelihood. It's an incredible number. Just think of it. One billion, that's you know, one-sixth of the population, of global population, is still dependent on harvesting of natural resources for basic livelihoods. And in many cases, that harvesting might be illegal. Their subsistence entails poaching the illegal collection of either plants or animals from the wild. And that is also part of the illegal wildlife economy. In some cases, uh, the poaching... The, Poaching for subsistence intersects with poaching for the international wildlife trade. In other cases, uh, they are absent. Now, apart from domestic regulations, there are international regulations. The principal regulatory agency uh, is, or principal regulatory um, uh, entity is uh, the Convention on Endangered Species that's called CITES that um, limits how uh, species that are threatened or endangered, particular endangered, can be traded internationally. Um, species that are deemed to be thriving can often be traded without restrictions, only depending on bilateral agreements and domestic regulations. Uh, animals, plants that are endangered will often not be allowed to be traded um, Internationally, those are plants that are on the highest listing of protection under CITES and individual country legislations. Uh, and they can only be traded legally with very special exceptions. And that's um, where a lot of the international debates about whether there should be any legal market for ivory come to. That's something that's very current. China has been uh, the world's largest um, legal demand for a legal market for ivory. Until this year, this year, uh, China made all its legal market in ivory illegal. There is no more ivory legally traded in China. That said, that that was a huge breakthrough for many conservation groups who fought very hard for that uh, because China has been one of the big siphons um, for ivory and really a driver. The demand in China has been a driver of uh, lots of the elephant poaching um, in Africa. Um, but the fact that it has become illegal doesn't mean that it's being effectively enforced, and we continue seeing um, that. I want to make um, other comment. I mentioned ivory just to um, get give a sense of scale. The world lost uh, since 2000, um, between 2000 and 2012, about one third of savanna Africa, uh, elephants in Africa. Just incredible number. We are talking about at least 200,000 elephants were illegally poached, were killed uh, within two years. There is hope that some of the poaching has leveled off, but it's the poaching is still an incredible intensity. A country like Tanzania, um, with great um, national, very famous national parks, Serengeti, Ngorongoro, many others, you know, the source of many of the uh, National Geographic BBC images that many uh, listeners might be familiar with, um, were often filmed in Tanzania. That country alone lost 60% of its elephants to poaching in the scope of uh, two or three years. Just incredible numbers that, uh, with respect to rhinos, 
again, we're, we're talking about uh, 1,500 rhinos lost between 1,000 and 1,500 for about now the span of 10 years in South Africa, where altogether maybe 18,000 to 20,000 rhinos uh, exist. So these are huge offtakes that can wipe out uh, populations. And especially for animals with slow reproductive rate, um, these can be absolutely catastrophic um, poaching rates. But uh, we need to think beyond and uh, beyond um, tigers and elephants and rhinos. What is really striking about the current poaching and trafficking crisis is just the incredible geographic scope. There is really no place in the world that's immune from that. Over the past several weeks, there have been multiple stories of uh, turtles and tortoises being poached into the United States, uh, taken out of the wild for trafficking internationally. Um, in Latin America, we are seeing uh, the rise of poaching of jaguars for the international wildlife trafficking uh, dimension of it. There has long been poaching of jaguars um, by cattle ranchers to eliminate threat to their, uh, to their, uh, or imagined threat to their um, cattle. But now it's uh, becoming traded as well. It's something we can explore. But it's frog, it's insects, it's sea cucumbers, uh, sharks. Maybe um, uh, hundred million sharks are killed yearly. Uh, for global demand, many of which are um, poached, are illegally smuggled. So the, the numbers game is often immense. Um, some one million pangolins, or maybe more at this point, have been, uh, some scaly anteaters, have been poached for wildlife trafficking. So just astounding scope, astounding geographic um, um, expansion, and really any species and genera and family and classes um, are being um, uh, poached and and shoved into the um, traffic. Um, I think that's that's fascinating, um, and it's also really depressing when you think about um, the scope of the poaching. Um, but I think that when most people hear of illegal trade, they think of drugs. So, what are the differences between wildlife trade and drug trade, and um, are there any similarities? You know, there are in fact many similarities, and there are some crucial differences. And one of the things that I do in my book, the extinction market, is to um, really draw lessons from the uh, from global counter narcotics efforts for wildlife trafficking. Many of the lessons of which are very sobering. I mean, let me start with the difference that uh, most most listeners um, think of probably immediately and the fact that uh, drugs are addictive uh, versus um, wildlife is not. So, by the way, the, raises the issue, why is wildlife traded? So, as I mentioned uh, already subsistence. So, for, for many poor marginalized people around the world, which is, you know, hundreds of millions of people, um, wildlife is eaten um, as um, subsistence food. It might, it might be the only source of protein. That's particularly true of uh, tropical areas where animal husbandry is difficult. Um, it might be the only source of protein. But in other cases, uh, again, East Asia, China, uh, Vietnam are good examples. Uh, wildlife uh, is eaten as a luxury product. So the more exotic the animal, it can be giant salamander or it can be um, a special grouper, for example, a fish called totoaba. It is consumed um, as, a, as a luxury meat. And sadly, the rarer the animal, the greater the price. 
So there is really no market stabilization uh, because in luxury goods, the rarer the animal, the greater the price and the greater desire then to take it out of the, out of the wild. Um, and a um, large source of demand is what's called traditional Chinese medicine, uh, which is a belief that uh, natural uh, resources are imbued with curative powers or aphrodisiacal powers. So a lot of um, animals um, in East Asia and in East Asia diaspora communities, including in the United States, are consumed with the belief that if one eats eagle eyes, it will cure blindness. Or um, in in Vietnam, which is a major demand country for uh, rhino horn, there's a prevalent belief that rhino horn uh, has anti-cancer property, that uh, it will cure cancer. Now, rhino horn is keratin. It's the same thing as my nails and your hair. So to eat rhino horn to cure cancer is the equivalent of chewing one's nails to cure cancer. It's not going to do anything. But in the context of a country where there is very poor access to medication, poor access to um, uh, cancer treatment and palliative care, this is sort of desperate even if uh, vain hope, in vain hope that people are, um, are clinging to. So there are these imagined um, um, uh, demand, uh, imagined properties that are attributed to wildlife products. Now, in the case of drugs, we know that drugs are addictive. Different drugs are differently addictive. Uh, synthetic opioids like fentanyl that are behind the US opioid crisis are enormously addictive far more so than uh, marijuana. So that's the one big difference. But in both cases, there is a complexity of why people use drugs and why people uh, use wildlife products. In the case of wildlife, it, the complexity is far greater. But the most significant difference really is not the addictive nature versus the non-addictive nature, uh, but it's really the fact that drugs can be produced indefinitely. And especially with the rise of synthetic drugs, um, there are really no limitations as to where and how they can be produced. So law enforcement efforts uh, have uh, no chance of taking the resource away. Someone will produce the drugs. It will, they can be always replanted infinitely. What it implies is that a crucial task for policy is to manage the greatest harms and threats that illegal trade or consumption pose. That's very different than wildlife. You know, in theory, wildlife can be produced indefinitely. Animals can be can reproduce. Now, as we have talked about, many animals reproduce at reproductive rates that are far lesser than the uh, damage that the international that that harvesting uh, makes. And um, the harvesting can be legal. A lot of um, natural destruction, for example, in fishing, is due to legal uh, fishing, the fishing might be legal, but it's unsustainable. So the fact that something is legal doesn't mean that it is well managed or that the policy is appropriate. Um, nonetheless, um, and in some cases, um, illegal uh, harvesting might uh, even pose lesser damage than legal trade does, depending on the scope. But nonetheless, the fact that something is illegal makes regulation, um, of course, harder. And, and so that's that's a crucial um, difference. The other very important element of that is that not only is wildlife depletable, unlike drugs, which is a non-depletable resource, it's depletable very rapidly. Uh, 
So to go back to some of the uh, Africa numbers, um, some conservation biologists believe that within something as 10 or 15 years, we can see declines in wildlife in Africa, perhaps on the scale of 40, 50 percent, just enormous collapses of uh, the numbers of uh, animals in particular species. Just think about, you know, a policy scope of 10 years to get something done is not very large. Whereas in uh, the case of drugs, there are real immediate consequences to make, to having inadequate policy, to having problematic policy. 72,000 uh, Americans died last year or more, died last year of the opioid epidemic. A huge number, right? So there are real consequences of failing in policy. But nonetheless, uh, we have decades and years to experiment with policy, which we don't have with uh, wildlife trafficking. Once a species is gone, it's gone. And once an apex species, an apex species is a species or a keystone species is a species that um, whose existence critically influences the health of the entire ecosystem and uh, many other species in that ecosystem. Once a keystone species or apex species is removed, not only it will never come back, it will significantly undermine the ecosystem. So the time pressures within which um, we are working in the sphere of uh, conservation and countering wildlife trafficking are radically different than the time pressures that we have in the case of uh, drugs and dealing with uh, illegal consumption. Nonetheless, there are also many structural similarities between the two and the set of tools that we have, bans and law enforcement, making the trade legal, licensing particular products. So, for example, legalizing marijuana and legalizing cocaine, legalizing uh, a sale of uh, elephant uh, tusks for a country, but not making it more broadly. Uh, involving local communities from alternative livelihoods, such as alternative livelihoods for um, uh, farmers who cultivate poppy for the production of heroin or who cultivate coca, and alternative livelihoods for people who are poor poachers. Um, Anti-money laundering measures and demand reduction measures are the same. There's the same set of tools, and there are really not many others that are different. Uh, some of which have the same, many of which have the same structural uh, limitations in both fields. Yeah, let me let me jump in on that point because I'm a big critic of the war on drugs. Most anti-drug policies are garbage, it seems to me, in the United States anyway, and they have been wildly unsuccessful at you know at least the way we've done it here in the United States at at either slowing down the growth of the problem of drug use itself, um, but also bad at managing the ill effects of people using drugs. And I'm, I'm you know, wondering what you think the likelihood of better solutions being applied in this case are, because it, it doesn't seem like, you know, there are so many similarities that you would expect some of the same policy making problems to exist. I mean, there's a lot of sort of the free riding problems. There's this, you know, tension between public and private ownership. There's, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of the same problems in the way to making better policy, it seems like. There are. I, you know, I would start by highlighting that in both cases, and particularly in the wildlife trafficking case, um, there are real structural limitations to how any of the five approaches I mentioned, any of the five policy tools, uh, can be effective. In both cases, the 
Rosetta Stone of the solution is bringing demand down. In both cases, that's very difficult. In the case of wildlife trafficking, many demand reduction solutions adopted are often naive and ineffective, particularly if they center primarily on simply raising general awareness or altruism-based messages. If we have learned one thing from demand reduction efforts uh, with respect to drugs, it is that people don't respond to diffuse costs and delayed costs. That when people respond, uh, and more broadly, you know, various public health crises, that people are a selfish species, rather very selfish species. And individuals um, often um, put other regarding um, behavior significantly below self-regarding behavior. Some of it is based on natural selections. Lots of it is based on socialization. So what works much better is to um, emphasize immediate direct costs to one's health, uh, sex, um, capacity for sex, uh, and um, uh, prestige. Now, the, the real difficulty with uh, much of the demand uh, for wildlife trafficking uh, linked to traditional Chinese medicine is that it's precisely emphasizing that if you eat tiger penises, your sexual potency will become far greater, that your health, sex, and prestige will be enhanced by engaging in behavior that is very negative, that is, that is very problematic. And these are entrenched beliefs. These are not things you're going to turn around with a public health campaign. Well, oh, that that tiger penis that you thought did this. Oh no, really? That's for losers. Well, I you know I, I actually would disagree with that. I mean, they might be entrenched beliefs, but they are um, entrenched beliefs that are manipulated and created by traders. So you know, some of the traditional Chinese uh, medicine goes back millennia. So two thousand, three thousand years ago, there was consumption of rhino horn products, but on a very vastly different scales because very few individuals at the time could afford it. But other so-called traditional is very non-traditional. For example, um, we have seen significant poaching of um, of a genus of birds called uh, hornbills that are sort of emblematic um, uh, birds of South Southeast Asia. They have uh, large bills, large tusks, um, and that have been over the past several years um, put forth by traders as the poor man's version of rhino horn, uh, just because they're um, stiff and large and can have um, symbolic references for some uh, people. And they are also being padded with some of the same aphrodisiacal and curative uh, um, powers uh, as rhino horn is. But this is a purely invented, uh, uh, not, you know, it's put forth as traditional, but this, there is no record of any of these uh, products being sold 500 years ago, 100 years ago. That's the strength of the free market. Entrepreneurship, uh, well, and, and that's, innovation, uh, that's, creativity. Uh, that's Trevor actually uh, very, very important because in this case it has you know the very negative repercussions uh, and uh, re really requires uh, market intervention. And that goes back to um, the drug war. Many of our drug policies adopted have been very bad, have been really negative, uh, deeply counterproductive, from eradication campaigns that we have sponsored to imprisonment of users, to vast criminalizations. 
But if anything uh, we should learn from the opioid epidemic, it is that um, simply turning the free market loose uh, is equally counterproductive. We would not have the opioid epidemic were it not for um, really unrestrained advertising and unregulated uh, promotion of um, opioid medicine, often with blatantly false uh, claims about the opioid medicine, but not for pharmaceutical uh, industry and, and major pharmaceutical companies. Uh, the, the illegal market uh, never did uh, unleash anything on the scale of the opioid epidemic. And, with respect to heroin, for example, but even cocaine that we have seen in the uh, at the time when large pharmaceutical companies could dominate the market, would escape effective regulation, and would lie, uh, literally lie about the presumed non-addictive uh, uh, qualities of uh, medical opiates. And so, uh, you know, that raises the complexity that while bans come with severe limitations, are enormously costly in terms of uh, in terms of resources, and and often cannot be made fully effective, especially not at rates that are necessary. To simply say, well, let's just have legal market also comes with very severe uh, negative repercussions. And we have seen that in uh, the wildlife trade. We have exactly the same debates about the wildlife trade, some of which are slightly different. But right now, the big push in conservation is uh, by many international NGOs is to have far tougher um, regulations, many more bans to, to uh, prohibit markets uh, and to aggressively enforce those markets. This is natural because often wildlife uh, law enforcement has been very poor, very weak. Um, officers uh, would not be given promotions. You would never make a career being bio park ranger, particularly true in many parts of the world, um, where uh, in Asia, Latin America, or, or Africa, where often minimal resources would be devoted. So increasing the level of enforcement is critical. Whatever policy is, whether legal trade or ban, it will not be effective unless it is enforced effectively. Enforcement is always needed, whether it's a regulatory agency overseeing the pharmaceutical company or a ranger protecting the protected area. But um, at the same time, there are many calls for giving death penalties to uh, poachers, many of whom are desperately poor people who rightly say, why does a white man care more about the rhino than the fact that my six children have nothing to eat? Especially in places where wildlife protection is associated with brutal colonial history, as in much of Africa and other parts of Asia. Um, moreover, what we know from counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, many other domains, policies that run roughshod over human rights, that say, shoot on side, shoot to kill, that go for maximum penalties are prone to massive human rights abuses, tend to be very ineffective in their primary objective, not just secondary objective, and generate political backlash. Those are not policies that should be adopted, yet they are very much promoted. That's, that's where the trend is uh, in a lot of the voices in the conservation field. Well, and I, and I think just in general that <clears throat> there's always a tension between you know, sort of the international community and national sovereignty. And, you know, there, there's a role for international institutions to play. But I think, you know, most people would agree that there's some 
uh, sort of boundary where national um, you know preferences and and sovereignty sort of takes over and it and and you know trying to impose the death penalty on someone in Tanzania for killing an elephant in Tanzania that that seems pretty much like something Tanzania should decide not me and well, so you know and, and but but on the other hand I mean okay goodbye elephants so I mean it, it, I get it that people want to do it but I mean I I wonder about how far to push the international influence here. Uh, uh, right and uh, you know the difficult part of the issue is that it has transnational spillover effects right it affects um, communities around the world in ways that are somewhat different than the drug trade, but also analogous to the drug trade. What happens in a Tanzanian village will not necessarily stay in the Tanzanian village. If a country sets a certain kind of regulation, for example, says we no longer agree with CITES, we are pulling out of CITES, and we will sell rhino horn irrespective of the fact that there is a global ban on rhino horn. That will have repercussions of on all other countries where rhinos exist if it stimulates greater global demand because it will uh, locate poaching, potentially translocate poaching in an area. So it, so um, setting domestic regulation uh, has major international spillover effects. That's one dimension. And here is where the contestation between the local international very much comes in, that local places, local sources of legislation have global impacts, even in the wildlife sphere. The other is, of course, that countries are not unified in their preferences. Even in a country in Africa where some might say, uh, where some of the poor poachers might say, we don't care whether there are elephants left. What matters to us is whether our kids go to school. There will be other constituencies who might be very, very keen to have the elephants preserved. And those are not simply material constituencies such as the ecotourism industry. Those might be people who simply value nature differently than economic development. So the same contestation, the same political uh, tensions and the same cleavages exist not just internationally, they very much exist within the same country. I mean, my view is that every policy in all domains, including very much in the conservation sphere, should always try to minimize the the cumulative harm and recognize that harms are created by an illegal trade on an unregulated policies, but then harms are also created by regulation and threats, and that uh, there are contradictory, um, there are often contradictory uh, objectives. In an ideal world, we would have a seamless. Um, unity or seamless harmony between economic interest and environmental interest between development interests and individual human rights and civil liberties and environmental regulation. Oftentimes we don't. They are in profound um, clashes and oftentimes uh, achieving a harmony or finding any policy is difficult. But at minimum, it is imperative whatever policy is adopted to recognize and tries to minimize the negative consequences, the harm that it will create. But it's very hard. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating and thought-provoking. Thanks to Vanda for joining us today and giving us insights on such an important and yet underreported issue. My great pleasure. And thanks as usual to our producer, Jeff Geld, and all of you out there for listening. Find us on Twitter with at CatoFP to continue the conversation.